Genesis chapter 18. Uh, and uh, be useful to have that open as well. Uh, but most importantly, Genesis 18. And if you're using the church Bibles, it's on page 15. We are doing a, uh, we're at the middle of a series on Genesis chapters 12 to 25. Uh, it's the story of Abraham. It's a part of the Bible that is about events that happened 2,000 years before Christ. That's about the beginning of God's plans to rescue the world that culminated in Jesus. Uh, as, we, as you know, the passage we're looking at is Genesis 18, but let me remind you briefly about what we've seen so far uh, in, in, these, uh, in this part of the Bible. Back in Genesis 12, God had called a man that we know as Abraham. And God had made promises to Abraham. He promised him many descendants. Promised that he would make his descendants into a great nation. He promised him the land, the land of Canaan. And he promised him great blessing for him and his descendants. And most importantly of all, he promised that through his descendants, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And God formalized these promises in covenants. God formalized the promise of the land in a covenant in which he walked between the corpses of slain animals, a custom of the time. He formalized the promise of descendants in the covenant of circumcision. But, Abraham didn't have an heir. Well, not an heir of promise anyway. Abraham was 99 years old and it hadn't happened. God had been promising many descendants to Abraham since Abraham was 75. That's 24 years ago, Genesis 12. In between those two covenants, however, 13 years ago, Abraham had attempted to take things into his own hands. He had married his wife's slave girl and had a son by her. His name was Ishmael. And it looked like Ishmael was the one. But in the second half of Genesis 17, God said very clearly, no, you'll have a son through your own wife, Sarah. Abraham laughed at the idea, but God insisted it was going to happen. He even gave the boy a name, Isaac, which means he laughs. And then Abraham obeyed God by circumcising all the males in his household. And not long after that, Abraham had another encounter with God. The encounter we're looking at today. And it comes as he shows hospitality to these unexpected guests. We read about that from the beginning of chapter 18. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of memory as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Him there is Abraham. So he's sitting in the door of his tent, you know, Abraham, he was nomadic in lifestyle. All right, he didn't build houses, little t- uh, tents, and they go around. All right, so there he is sitting in the door of his tent in the heat of the day, and God appears to him. And interestingly, God appears to him in human form. Verse 2, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. Now, when I first read this, I thought maybe it's like Trinity, you know. Uh, God and three, but well, I don't think so because if you if you read down to uh, chapter nineteen, verse one, two of them are identified as angels, and those are the two who actually leave the scene in chapter eighteen, verse twenty-two. Uh, 
they, who went to Sodom, and Abraham stood before the Lord. So it looks like uh, two of them are angels, but one of them is the Lord. He's Yahweh. He is God. Himself. So it's a very puzzling thing, of course, until we get to the New Testament and we see how God did become a human being, really, in the person of Jesus. And so once again, looking back now, from the New Testament, then we can see that most likely what we're seeing here is God the Son speaking to Abraham. Somehow or other, though, during this encounter, Abraham realizes the presence of the Lord. We don't know where it is in the narrative. Maybe it is at first sight. Maybe that's why he comes and bows before him and all that. Or maybe there's a gradual realization as the events unfold. Whether or not Abram knew who these men were at this stage, the beginning, Abram was overwhelming in his humility and his hospitality to these men. From the second half of verse 2. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your son. You think, so, so, no, 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 you know, you must come, you must stop. No, don't go. Alright? I'm going to get you some food. So you just sit down here, sit down on the tree, yeah, wash your feet, wait for a while. I'm going to get, I've got a bit of bread, a bit of water to get, get for you. Eh? So, what is it? so what did they say? They said, okay, do as you say. And then what does Abraham do? Verse 6, he went quickly to the tent of Sarah. I said, quick, quick, quick. Make three, take three sears of fine flour. That's a lot. Knead it and make cakes. He said bread. He's going to make cakes. Okay? And this is Sarah, wife of Abraham. Not Sarah Lee. Right? So she's got to do the cakes herself. And, right? Gets her working on it. And then he also gets busy. Right? In, in, uh, in verse 7, he says, he ran, Abraham ran to the herd and, and took a calf, tender and good, and he gave it to the young men who prepared it quickly. Why? Wow, it's going to eat meat, man. Right? He said, bread and, bread, and, uh, bread and water. Now it's going to slaughter a calf. That's expensive food. And there's more on the menu. And he said, water. But then verse 8, he took curds and milk and the calf that he prepared and set it before them. It's a lavish feast. It's evidence of Abram's hospitality. It's a feast that he and his wife both put a lot of effort into it, even though it was very rushed. It's a feast that costs. It's a feast that he doesn't actually get to enjoy either. Because he does this for the three men, while he himself, uh, verse 8, stood by them under the tree while they ate. Must be something like the custom of the timeline. I don't know, but I've been to houses before. You know, in, some, in some cultures, even today, uh, even here in some cultures, you go to the house and they give you all the food, they don't sit down there. Have you, have you, been, have you been to people's house like that? They sit down there, and they give you the food, then they watch you, come eat, eat, eat more, eat more. Oh, you haven't been. Okay, I've been. Right. Abram's being very hospitable. He's a model of hospitality. Friends, hospitality is not just a... Okay, lad, some people are hospitable, some people are not hospitable. No, hospitality is a command from God. The Apostle Paul, speaking by the Holy Spirit, says in Romans 12 verse 13, he says, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. 
look for opportunities to be hospitable. The Apostle Peter, writing by the same Spirit, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Be hospitable and don't go and grumble afterwards about it. Complain. And then Hebrews 13 verse 2, in a passage that may or may not be referring to what we've just read about, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So hospitality is, is part of being faithful. Now we can't all be hospitable in the same way. When the Ampang Church was starting, uh, first starting up, we had nowhere to meet. And uh, the Rushworths, whom some of you know, and the Dalties, whom some of you know, opened up their house. And you know they made every effort to make the, 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 the church welcome. Even provided food for hungry Sunday school teachers. And uh, you know, people who had come from... From, uh, from spec one they were hospitable of course not everyone lives in Ampang not everyone has a home large enough to do that and even not everyone who's got a home large enough to do that can, is able to do that under, under their circumstances but we can all be hospitable in different ways it may involve opening our homes to cell groups or spec teams or dialogue dinners it may involve inviting newcomers or even old timers at church to come to our house for lunch or dinner but many of us don't have homes where you can open because you're not in charge of your home. Your parents are. So, you can invite people out. You can be hospitable in some other place. It doesn't matter if it's at the Hilton or at the Nasilamak store. It doesn't matter if it's for a meal or for tetare. It doesn't have to be for food and drinks. You can invite people to, to come in and be hospitable, do social activity together, like, like some of you expect to... Uh, group organized the bowling last night and got people to come in and being hospitable and welcoming to them. As a congregation, we have to be hospitable to newcomers, visitors who come our way, try and welcome them and to try and help new smackers integrate into the community beyond the first few weeks. I actually think our congregations are hospitable. Don't you? I think so. I, keep, I actually do keep getting good feedback uh, about people who come along and say, oh, I've been really warmly welcomed. Now, the other, just recently we had a blue card from someone uh, who was a tourist passing through. She was not just helped by the Bible teaching, but she was really warmly welcomed by those who were here. And, and she wrote me a blue card, and I can't remember which way around it was, uh, other than she wished our church was in her country, or she wished that she lived here. Uh, but, you know, it doesn't matter. But our gatherings are welcoming places. Uh, we want to keep that, keep, keep, keep being hospitable, keep doing that. Right? Because as a community, we want to be welcoming people. And we want to be thankful for those who go to the second mile to make that happen. Those who bring refreshments. Uh, for the welcomers, uh, for, for the regulars, and for the visitors to eat and drink after church. That's, that's showing hospitality. Um, those who look out for people, who make the effort to build relationships. That's showing hospitality. And the Bible commands us to do that. Let's wait for the bell to finish. Okay. The example of Abraham's hospitality, though, that's not the main point of the story. There they were, sitting under the tree. Enjoying Abraham's hospitality, eating this feast that he's prepared, 
And the man asked Abraham a question. Verse 9. Where is Sarah, your wife? Now, the Lord knows where Sarah is, doesn't he? Not, so he's not asking just so that he can know. It's a rhetorical question. He wants to bring up Sarah in the conversation. And Abraham answers, she, she's in the tent. And then, listen to what God says. I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. God is promising Abraham, God's promised Abraham in the past that he'd have a son through Sarah, but now he's putting a timetable on it. This is definite now. One year, I'll be back, and Sarah will have a son. Now, Sarah, in verse 10, she's, she's uh, listening. Don't know if she's keeping capable or, or she's standing there or whatever it is, but she's listening at the tent in the door behind. And she knows that she's old. Right? And so is her husband. Verse 11 reminds us that, that her monthly cycle has long ceased. She's postmenopausal. She couldn't have a baby. And verse 12, Sarah laughed to herself and said, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? But God doesn't think it's very funny. Verse 13, the Lord said to Abram, Why does Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Oh, is anything too hard for the Lord? Of course it isn't. He's the sovereign Lord of all the earth. He's the one who made the universe out of nothing. That's how powerful he is. Is anything too hard for the Lord? The prophet Jeremiah uh, prayed in Jeremiah 32 verse 17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. See, if God can create the universe, then nothing. When the angel spoke to Mary and said that she as a virgin would be with child and Elizabeth, her relative, will conceive in her old age, Yet to remind her that nothing is impossible with God. And Jesus himself speaking about uh, people coming into the kingdom. Something that human beings can't do by themselves. It's impossible with man, he says, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. Even new spiritual life. See, some people can't bring themselves to believe in the miraculous. You don't get it so much here in our society. It's more prominent in the West, but it's still here. People say, I don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus because dead people don't rise. It's impossible. But that's the whole point, isn't it? God did what otherwise would be impossible. If people could rise from the dead just willy-nilly after three days, then that wouldn't be a miracle. Or the virgin birth. People look at you as if you don't know basic biology when you say you believe the virgin birth. I can't remember. I can't remember if I was a medical student or a doctor. When I was, I was trying to share the gospel with a very smug young man who told me that he didn't believe in the virgin birth because he studied science. The Bible isn't saying it happens all the time. It's not saying it is possible under normal circumstances. It's not possible unless unless the Creator Himself does it. The God who created everything 
the one by whom and for whom everything exists, is perfectly capable of doing creative work again. Only he can do it. But nothing is too hard for him. And so if this God, the God who planned and gave existence to the whole universe, decides that he wants to give Abraham and Sarah a child in their old age, it sucks up, say, yeah. Right? Dead easy, not a problem. And so God continues in the second half of verse 14. He says, At the appointed time I will return to you. About this time next year, Sarah shall have a son. That is God's purpose. So Abraham now knows he's got a time frame. And his years and years and years of waiting will soon be over. And in spite of laughing to herself about this preposterous idea, within a year, Sarah would have a son. The only thing is that Sarah, is now outside the tent, denied laughing. Verse 15, Sarah denied it. says, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. Like a kid, you know, caught doing something wrong. No, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Look at you. <laughs> Pretty stupid thing to say, though, isn't it? The God who is all powerful is also all knowing. The God who can do anything also knows everything. He knows what is going on behind the curtain of the tent. He knows what is going on in Sarah's heart and mind. Sarah is setting herself up for a big rebuke by lying in God's face, but. God is gracious. He didn't rain fire and brimstone on her like he was going to in the next chapter. He just affirmed what he said. Verse 15, he says, No, but you did laugh. That's it. God knows in a discussion. Friends, God knows everything. He knows our deepest thoughts and our feelings. We cannot fool him. We can fool ourselves, we can fool each other, but we can't fool God. And you know, friends, that is a good thing. It is a comforting thing. Because there are no surprises with God. He's not going to say on the last day, Yes, I did say you were saved, but at that point I didn't realize how bad you were. He's not going to say, if only I knew what was in your heart, I would never have sent my son to die for you. No, no, no. God knows how bad we are. And he loves us anyway. And he's shown us that by giving his son to die for us on the cross. The death of Jesus takes away God's anger for our sins, so, so we don't have to be afraid like Sarah. Sometimes we sing, there is no more need to hide. We can't cover up. But if we trust in Jesus, then there's no need to. So it wasn't try and hide from God, eh? It wasn't deny what's in our hearts. It wasn't pretend we're all righteous when, and really we're not. Proverbs 28.13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy.
There's a passage we often read here at church after our confession time. 1 John 1, 8, 10 If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What's the pretend? Well, the men had finished their meal. They said what God wanted to say to Abram and Sarah. Now they're getting ready to go to their next destination. Verse 16, chapter 18. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. I wonder why they're looking at Sodom. And Abraham went with them, set them to go on their way. And then quite amazingly, the next thing we read is God talking to himself. Or maybe he's talking to one of the angels, we don't know. But either way, listen to what he says in verse 17. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham surely shall become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? Is that a cat? Where's the cat? Inside? Outside? That's okay, we'll take a break and look for the cat, because otherwise everyone's just thinking about the cat. Right? Where's the cat? Stuck up. No cat stuck in that room, is it? Outside, lah. Once they come in, okay, never mind. We'll leave it. Okay, try and ignore the cat. All right. Right. Back to the Bible. God is about to tell Abraham his plans. Why does He want to tell Abraham his plans? Remember, He says He's going to become a great nation. All the nations of us are going to bless through Him, and He wants him. And he wants his descendants to learn from what God is about to do. Because he's chosen him, verse 19, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he promised him. See, God was going to do a great act of judgment. Whether or not Abraham was involved, he was going to do it. But he wanted Abram to know about it so he could tell his children and his children and his children's children and it would be a cautionary tale from generation to generation so that they would be righteous and just. That's the similar fate fall upon them. So God tells Abram what he's doing. Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be destroyed and it's not an accident, it's not a freak. God is going to do it because of their sin. But first he was going to come down and investigate Verse 20 to 21. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. That's interesting, isn't it? God heard an outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. There were complaints about the wickedness of these cities. Who was complaining? It must have been the victims of the wickedness. And you know what? They probably thought that God wasn't listening to their complaint. 
They probably thought that they, they were being treated badly, they were being abused, they were being wronged, and, and God didn't care. That's not so. God, God takes complaints seriously. Remember when the people of Israel, they were slaves in Egypt? They cried out to God. God heard their groaning. He rescued them out of Egypt and he punished their aggressor. The New Testament book of James. The cries of the workers who had been used but not paid reached the ears of God and he was going to punish the rich people who exploited them. In the book of Revelation, God hears the cries of those who have been slain for the gospel and he tells them to wait until he avenges their blood. God hears the cries of the oppressed. He may not take action immediately. His timing is his alone. But he does take action. The other thing to notice here is that he investigates before taking action. Verse 21 again. I will go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, of course, God knows everything now. Right? It's not as if, you know, he's got to do like CSI and come and try and work out. You know, you know. What it's saying here is, he investigates, that is, he does not judge on hearsay. People might complain about us. God takes that seriously, but he would not judge us on that basis. He would judge us on the basis of truth. He will look into our hearts. He will investigate what we have done. He will see if we have done according to the outcry. Because God is just. And so in verse 22, the men head towards Sodom. Remember chapter 19 verse 1 shows there was two of them who were doing that. The other one, who is God, stays with Abraham. So verse 22, the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. And then he does something that is either very heroic or very foolish. Verse 23, and Abraham drew near and said, he's speaking to God, mind you, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? speaks to God. Are you going to... Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Will you? Now, you must understand, God hasn't revealed anything about the final judgment to Abraham at this stage. As far as Abraham knows, the judgment in this life is all there is. God wasn't about to reveal that to Abraham. If Abraham knew about a final judgment, this wouldn't be it wouldn't mean a problem. The judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah is small compared to the final judgment. God, you could use that to, to titrate his justice perfectly according to what everyone has done. But God doesn't reveal things just to defend himself. He is just. Full stop. Abraham knows he's just. We know he's just. God is not, not accountable to us. We're accountable to him. And yet, 
And yet God is gracious and patient with Abraham. Abraham is bold with God. And he continues. He says in 18.24, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? He's very bold and talking to God, isn't he? And the Lord said, If I find that Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham is so bold to talk to God like this. Sometimes, friends, sometimes people are audacious with God because they don't know Him. They are bold but dumb. They think he's tame, like a pal. Or they think they can say anything to him and he's useless and will never respond. But Abram's not like that. Abram is audacious not because he doesn't know God, but because he does. And he knows God's character of holy love and justice. And because he knows God, he is brave to move forward. And he's brave to talk to God on the basis of his character. He knows that the judge of the earth will do right. But still he prefaces his words with, with a humble opening. He, verse 27 again. Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. See, he's not being presumptuous, is he? He continues, suppose five of the fifty are lacking, will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Suppose forty are found there. For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Oh, let the Lord, the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. I will not do it if I find thirty. Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I suppose twenty are there. You can easy his bargaining. For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy. He does it one last time. Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. For the sake of ten, I will not destroy. And then God stops the conversation. The Lord went on his way, and when he had finished speaking to Abraham, Abraham returned to his place. So, what would happen if there were less than ten? Would God destroy the righteous with the unrighteous? I'll come back next week and we'll see. But what can we learn from this third surprise? What, what is it here that, that applies to us? Well, first of all, this passage reminds us of the justice of God. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? Abraham asks, 
when he thinks God is going to destroy the righteous and the wicked together in a single blow. And of course he shall. The judge of the earth will do what is just. Will he sweep away the righteous and the wicked? Certainly not. If there are only ten righteous people in Sodom, God will have spared the city because of Abraham's intercession. But you know, there are times in this world when the righteous do go under for the unrighteous. Aren't there? Even in the Old Testament it happened. There would have been a remnant in Judah. A remnant in Israel. Who were righteous, who loved the Lord. Who were destroyed at the time of their country's exile. But God brought judgment upon the, the nations. For their sin against him. How does that fit with this? This passage tells us that God is just. Will he sweep away the righteous for the unrighteous? Friends, God's character of righteousness is, and justice comes across so clearly here. Because this shows us that God will not ultimately judge without discrimination. He will judge with justice. He will separate the righteous from the unrighteous. That is the, that is the basic principle of God's justice. And that is the ultimate principle of God's justice. That is the final judgment. We see it foreshadowed here. God assures Abraham, he ultimately will do what is right. He will punish the wicked and save his people. And so when we read this passage in light of the other passages of the Old Testament, we've got to, there's a tension there. And we've got to come to the conclusion that death is not the end. There must be a judgment beyond death in which this is worked out. In which God judges with perfect justice, taking everything into account, including the punishment that's already been meted out in this life. Otherwise, Abram's fears would have been grounded. But we know that's not the case. That God is perfectly just. That the judge of all the earth does do what is right. And so there must be a final judgment at the end. Secondly, remember how God told Abraham his plans for the judgment. Well, God has done the same thing for us. Remember how God said, oh, will I hide from Abraham what I'm going to do? And he says, no, I'm not going to do that. In our New Testament reading today, Jesus says to his disciples, I no longer call you servants, the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, I've called you friends, for all that I've heard from my father I've made known to you. God has told us his plans and one of the plans that he's told us is the plan for judgment. In fact, we've been told about that final judgment which we just worked out must happen. Because God's plans for Sodom and Gomorrah they were a shadow, a foretaste, a model of his plan for judging the world. 
And we'll look further next week about how the Old Testament talks about Sodom and Gomorrah and, and its relevance for us. But just like God told Abraham about the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah beforehand, he has warned us beforehand that he is bringing destruction on this world. 2 Peter 3, for example. 2 Peter 3, verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar. Heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that have done on it will be exposed. Jesus himself speaks of the day when he judges between the righteous and the unrighteous. The unrighteous, he says, will go away to everlasting destruction, and the righteous to eternal life. God has taught us his plans. Just like he told Abraham. We are his friends. He doesn't keep it from us. Thirdly, when we see Abram pleading with God for Sodom, we remember how God said that nations will be blessed through him. And we see Abram trying to be a blessing to Sodom and Gomorrah by being a mediator for them. By begging God to show them mercy. By calling on God to spare them if there are 50, 40, 30, 20, 45, 30, 20, 10, just 10 people there. But his mediation depended on there being those 10 righteous people there in the first place. If there were just ten righteous people in Sodom, God would have spared the city. Let me give you a sneak preview of next week. There aren't. And Abraham fails to halt the destruction that God has planned. Abraham can plead to God to spare the city if there are ten righteous people there. But he is powerless to make the unrighteous people righteous and therefore save them. Friends, Jesus Christ is also a mediator. He is the one, in fact, to whom all the mediators in the Old Testament point forward to. He is the mediator. And the book of Hebrews tells us that he ever lives to intercede for us. Always lives to plead for us. But as the true son of Abraham, he is the one who truly does bring God's blessing to the nations of the world. For unlike Abraham, Jesus is not only able to plead for us and hope that we are righteous. He is able to make us righteous in God's sight. You see, in this world there is no one truly righteous in an ultimate sense. There is no one who can really deserve to escape God's final judgment. Yet Jesus, our mediator, not only pleads for us, but sacrificed himself for all who belong to him. He lived that perfectly righteous life. And he died for us on the cross, taking our sins and our guilt and our punishment on himself. So that those who have faith in him are counted righteous. And that God would spare us on the day of judgment. Not because of our goodness, but because of his.
Abraham prayed that God would spare the whole city for the sake of a few righteous people. But Jesus was the one true righteous man through whom many are saved. Thank God that we have a mediator like him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus, our great High Priest, our great Mediator, whoever lives to intercede for us. We thank you that not only does he plead for us, 